Hi guys, I just wanted to hop on really quick before this episode started and give a quick trigger warning. We talk a lot about OCD, but specifically contamination OCD, religious OCD, and pet OCD. We talk a bit about pet death and anxiety, intrusive thoughts, shame, religious trauma, and death slash fear of death. Um, This episode is really educational for people who either have OCD or love someone with OCD, and I really hope you enjoy it. and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we're going to be talking about OCD, which I have gotten into with my personal experience with OCD, but we haven't really had a lot of conversations with guests about OCD. And I am not wildly qualified to talk about it except for personal experience. So I'm very excited today to have Dr. Amy Mariaskin uh, on the podcast to talk about OCD and specifically some kind of interesting facets of OCD that don't get talked about quite as much. Um, How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Fina. I'm excited about this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I've literally been, I've wanted to have someone on to talk about more specific facets of OCD for a while because I suffer from certain, uh, I don't know, subsets of OCD that Mm -hmm. don't get talked about really at off like at all it's been in the last like maybe five years that it's become like a people have instagram pages and they'll do really like interesting infographics of ocd that people had no idea existed um and i know it's not quite as recognized in terms of like the dsm like there's not really as many actual diagnoses for certain subsets um and so it's one that i tried to kind of do an episode a while back just because it was like i didn't realize until i was maybe like two years ago, um, because I struggle with contamination OCD really bad. That's like in the hierarchy of my mental disorders. That is the one that is like the worst. It it Uh, actually impacts my life the most. And it's extremely misunderstood. And Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize how misunderstood it was until COVID. And my contamination OCD skyrocketed, obviously. And I started talking to people about it and a lot of people were very confused about I, just even the the logistics behind it. And um, I think the the core of OCD is misunderstood a lot, like the actual motivation for why people do things. And then it's, of course, been a fun thing that people toss around. It's been on Christmas sweaters as like little puns. And so it's it's a very misunderstood disorder, and it's also been in pop culture a lot in maybe not the most helpful ways. So I think having a conversation about it that is actually like well informed from someone who <laughs> knows what they're talking about, which will will be really helpful. Um, but yeah, so with that, how did you get into like the specialty of OCD? Mm-hmm. What what brought you to that? Yeah, it was. It was kind of a bit of a circuitous route. Like I started out when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. And in the service of character development, I took a job working at a school for kids with developmental disabilities. And so a lot of kids were on the spectrum and things like that. And I found that I just sort of fell in love with psychology as a whole and clinical psychology specifically. So working with people who have uh, mental health concerns and so forth and just, you know, my personal experience and the experience of family members and just feeling like, wow, okay, 
you know, maybe I could shift to doing, to doing this kind of work. So I started getting a, a little bit into research. And um, when I was in graduate school, two things happened. The first thing that happened was I had my first client with OCD. I started treating my first client with OCD. And I just found it so incredibly, like this wonderful mixture of science and applying evidence-based practice and art because it is really creative. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, there's, there's a lot of wiggle room if you're going to be a good OCD therapist in terms of like how you connect with people and really have them open up about things that can be the source of so much embarrassment and shame and just terror. So that happened. Um, and then right around that time as well, I was diagnosed myself with OCD and I had, I mean, I was like, you know, I guess I was maybe two years into graduate school and I had no idea that it was OCD precisely because of some of the things that you said, which is we tend to think of OCD in this very almost caricature-like way of, you know, it's people who like cleaning and they like checking and they like, and and, and even my saying they like it is like, okay, y'all don't understand it because nobody yeah, likes their compulsion. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think all of that kind of coalesced and I, um, and I guess the third thing is that my graduate advisor was leaving. I was at, um, at Duke university at the time and she was moving up to Penn state. And I was like, well, I'm staying at Duke and I have to now choose a new research topic. And that's how I chose OCD. And that was ooh, probably 2005. And since then I have just, I had a private practice here in Tennessee, um, in the Nashville area. And then I served as clinical director for child and adolescent programming at Rogers Behavioral Health, which is like an OCD specialty intensive treatment facility. And then in 2018, I decided to open my own clinic, the Nashville OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center. And that's what brought me up to now. I love that. Yeah. Even like I'm told, to be honest, I didn't even know there were OCD treatment centers. And like, that's how like Ah, that's how, uh, I guess not mainstream OCD treatment is, is like, mm -hmm. I had no idea that even existed. And yeah. And it's also, uh, speaking to the, the kind of caricature, uh, nature mm -hmm. of it, it's really hard too, because with, with certain subsets of OCD, you might fall into some of those kind of stereotypes. Like you might really, right. uh, be a really organized person. Like cleanliness might be something that's very important to you and very vital to your well being. Um, but yeah, the specific kind of assumption that it is enjoyed right. is I think what is confusing because I, mm -hmm. I deemed myself a germaphobe for a very long time, um, and would say, oh yeah, well cleaning is just like a stress reliever for me. And I didn't realize that it wasn't a stress reliever. It was a compulsion. And therefore when I would, uh, fulfill that compulsion, I felt this kind of, temporary sense of relief that then with all OCD compulsions was kind of mm -hmm. a little bit not fake, but just not, I guess, entirely authentic. It wasn't actually a true stress yeah. reliever. It was just leading to my next compulsion. And so I used to say all the time in college, like, oh yeah, no, I just like cleaning is like really stress relieving for me. Mm. And it was a way for me to just like, yeah. I just, it just calms me down. And it was like, it calms me down because it's, I'm actually fulfilling a compulsion that's been in my head and like ticking right. at my brain. And so I check that off and then that I get a little, <gasps> okay, I did it. Yes. And I get that tiny little sense of relief. And then the next thing comes. And I didn't realize that until 
COVID because it got so much worse that I was like, oh, now it's not I like to have a clean house. Now it's I can't buy groceries and have them enter my home unless I've wiped them down. And if someone comes into my home and I know they've been at the store, they have to change (laughs) because they have outside germs. And it was like, "Hmm, okay, this isn't quite a stress reliever. Like there's something not quite right here. Um, And I didn't even the outside germs thing. I've thought that since I was six, five, whatever, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm not going to wear my outside pants on my bed. And I taught, once you start talking about that with people who don't experience those similar compulsions and those similar intrusive thoughts, it's like, oh, (laughs) perhaps that's not entirely a neurotypical thing to be thinking, um, which is a a revolution in itself, um, which we're going to talk about contamination OCD a little bit later because that is selfishly the one that I love to talk about and love to get you know, dispel misinformation and all that kind of stuff because it directly affects me. But we were going to start with uh, pet OCD because a lot of my listeners are people in their 20s. And a lot of people in their 20s, specifically during the pandemic, got pets because that was a way that a lot of people were able to find joy, find some sort of purpose. I got a pet. My dog's a COVID dog. Like a lot of us did that. And I think a lot of people especially that I know also started experiencing these really like anxiety provoking feelings and intrusive thoughts and fears Mm -hmm. and all these different things that came with that. And it doesn't get talked about very often. And yet it is, I talk to so many friends that I know that have dogs or cats and like the guilt and the intrusive thoughts and the really intense fear of their pet dying is like so overwhelming. And I'm very much so in that like box Um, And so we kind of wanted to start off talking about that. So with that being said, uh, what are, and this is a really broad question, but what are some coping strategies to help with this? Like just right off the bat, what do you know about things that might be helpful to not necessarily like fix it? Because I don't really think that's a realistic expectation, but to maybe cope a little bit better with it. Yeah, I think that the awareness of the awareness that these kinds of fears are, well, number one, are really common. Like you said, there are a lot of people who have gone through that. And number two, if you have a diagnosis of OCD and you're having any of these kinds of pet worries or things like that, then I think being able to say, okay, how does this fit into what you were describing really well, which is the OCD cycle of, I have this unwanted, very distressing thought. So for example, let's say my unwanted distressing thought is as I was coming to this interview and I left my dog at home, maybe I have a thought about what if I left something dangerous out on the counter and the dog gets to that and then they get really sick. And what if they are, you know, what if they're suffering right now? And the thing is a lot of people with OCD have incredible imaginations and just this sense of creativity that the OCD can hijack and take to the very dark place very quickly. We always say it's like zero to death in 10 seconds. Like your brain is like, do not pass go. Like we're just, we're just going to go there. Um, Yeah. And so I would say recognizing, okay, where am I? If I have OCD and I'm having these fears, where am I in the cycle? Okay. So I'm in, maybe I'm in the part of the cycle where I'm having that really intense um, intrusive thoughts. So when you're in at that point, 
a coping strategy can be to think about, you know, what is functioning as a compulsion? What is kind of like, I always talk about it, like having a mosquito bite. When you have OCD, it's like the obsession is this really itchy bite and the compulsion is what you do to scratch it. And exactly like you said, Fina, when you scratch it, you might have this kind of temporary relief. And then it sort of reinforces it and you're itchier and itchier and itchier. So like you said, in your example, it may be stress relief to clean, you know, uh, in some sense, but it's like OCD is causing these stress to begin with. So taking a step back and saying, okay, you know, I use a lot of like um, techniques from acceptance and commitment therapy, which posit that we can have a really different relationship with our thoughts. You know, we can observe our thoughts and it ties into mindfulness, which I know is a big focus of this podcast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So being able to kind of look back and and say, okay, brain, like I I noticed that I'm having that thought. I noticed that that thought is really scary and connect with, I noticed that that thought is scary because I care about my pets so much. And what is my sort of like, you know, what urges am I having that might be scratching the itch? So if I were to phone my husband right now and say like, uh, you know, Curtis is my dog. <laughs> is, is Kurt okay? Like, can you check on Kurt? Um, and I know that I have a tendency toward having compulsions in that area, then it might be refraining from doing the compulsion while reminding yourself, look, this is my anxiety glomming onto something that is really important to me. I am a loving pet owner and my anxiety is like sort of trying to use that against me. Um, so that's a, and I know that's a little bit abstract, but I would say that's kind of one, one coping strategy. Um, you know, reminding yourself of the, um, the difference between the what if and the what is again, very general, but OCD is going to go to that. What if, and coming back to the, what is, um, you know, if you're having compulsions while you're with your pet, if it's the sort of thing where you're doing body checking on them, like, do they have any lesions? Do they have any lumps coming back to, you know, what kind of time do I want to spend with my pet? Like maybe I just, I just want to spend snuggle time and it's not about this kind of like turning them over and inspecting their bellies and things like that, because all of that is based on a what if. Um, so maybe when we get into more specific examples, I can have a few more um, strategies there, but that's kind of some basics. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I mean, once again, selfishly, I picked three different type like subsets of OCD that I struggle with. So this is like partially to like help my audience, but also to get information for myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head with it. It really does. You're obviously you care for your pet a lot and you love your pet a lot. And that's obviously why you would be concerned right there. If anything, it's, it's very much so confirming the fact that you really are a loving, caring mm-hmm. pet owner. and. Um, I, so often I will drive away from my apartment and all of a sudden just get a very intrusive, like very uh, visual like mm. situation in my head of my apartment burning down or something happening. And I'm just like, oh my God, oh my God, like what do I do? What do I do? And I've had multiple times where I'm having to literally like tears are streaming out my face and I'm like driving away from my apartment mm. and I'm like, okay, we can't turn around. Like it's just not realistic right now. Like I don't have time to turn around. And then, of course, your brain goes down the whole thought process of like, okay, so what the time is going to be what like what costs your dog its life. And it's like now we're way up here. 
we don't even know if there's any type of danger. But my brain has now gone to like, my dog is dead and it's my fault because I prioritized going to the grocery store over the of my dog, which is a lot. That's a, that's a very large step mm-hmm. to take. But it feels, it doesn't feel large in the moment and it can escalate so quickly that you're, I feel like I, I often almost lose um, any type of big, big picture perception of the fact that we just went from zero to death. Like I'm thinking like, no, this is like, of course, this is what's going to happen. And it's been helpful in my life to have people who don't have OCD and can kind of step in and be like, hey, we just did a really big jump there. Like, can we can we look at that yeah. jump? Because that was really massive. Um, but that's not always an option. And so kind of having those thought processes that you can try to work through on your own, I think is also very helpful. And I want to go back to what you said about the creativity and the imagine, imagination part of OCD. I have never thought of OCD like that. Um And I'd love for you to dive in a little deeper on that because I think that there is a lot of shame and there's a lot of self-shame. And you're very correct in the fact that so many compulsions can be really embarrassing and sharing them with people and sharing like, hey, if you come to my space, I need you to do this because I, I can't really function if you don't. Or, hey, can you confirm that this is true? And even just feeling like you're needy or feeling like you're too much is I feel like a very common theme for a lot of people. And never in my life have I ever heard it reoriented in a way that highlights actually the strengths of your brain and not the shame of it. Um, So I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more because I think that would be really encouraging for a lot of people, myself included. Yes, I am so happy to do so. And I'm actually, I think I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a comic about this too, I think. Um, pretty soon because it's something I've been I've been thinking about, especially with respect to mental health concerns and any kind of um, neurodiversity, any kind of neurodivergence. I suppose um, I think that we are moving collectively towards seeing the strengths that are inherent in um, in different mental health conditions. And I think with OCD, one of the things that I see pretty consistently. Um, well, I'll name a few things, but creativity is one of them because the to make that kind of a leap from you know the zero to one hundred, I think in there there's a richness of inner experience, and there's a richness of um, yeah of just just creativity, imagination. I think is huge. Um, there is there are even some kinds of treatments for OCD which really look at a crucial step in treatment as being like helping people figure out when they're going into their imagination and sort of going away from the facts that they have, you know, in, in their environment. And I feel like sometimes when people say that, like, well, you know, that's not logical. It's, that's really painful, right. For a lot of people with OCD, because like when you have OCD, you know, it's not logical, but you know that it's because it's possible. There's this, there's this idea of like conflating possibility with probability, And so because it's possible, because I had that thought and because I'm a really compassionate person, that's another thing I'll say. Creativity and compassion tend to be pretty off the charts in people with OCD because if my mind creatively gave me this image of my house burning down with my pet inside and then I have such incredible compassion for this animal it's almost like your brain is saying you have no other choice but to turn around exactly. and rest. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think like those two things, the creativity and the compassion, 
And then I think it's sort of, there are some subtypes where I feel like there is this intense, almost like aesthetic appreciation, because I think like with, um, I know I'm deviating a little bit from the themes that we're going to cover, but there are people who do have like a just right subtype OCD where things have to be ordered and arranged just so. And I mean, there are people who I talk to with this subtype who also just like, I think they just see more visual information. I think they have access to more visual information and even sort of like aesthetic information, things that um, some of us just don't, don't see. So those are some of the strengths that come to mind when I think about it. And I think that there are ways to exercise those considerable strengths without it feeding OCD. Yeah. And that's like, how beautiful too, because that's something that I do think we are moving as a society towards recognizing more um, beauty and more strengths. Um, I think it's Mm -hmm. been, I I honestly think the autism community um, really kind of started that um, because there was a serious uh, shift from, oh, how can we cure? How can we fix to, can we take a pause and like acknowledge how genius so many people who are on the spectrum are and how, how Mm -hmm. the differences in the way their brain works can be so incredibly cool and beneficial and like, just like amazing to get to know them. And it it definitely started to shift from a, okay, well, how can we, how can we cure? How can we fix? How can we prevent to like, or we can love the people as they are and acknowledge how cool they Mm -hmm. are and start to like really dive into that. And I think that was one of the first communities that really started to shift the narrative there. Um, but I haven't heard it a lot with OCD. Mm. I haven't heard it a lot in the OCD community Um, and not necessarily like within people who have OCD. Cause I think a lot of uh, people who have OCD are like, please acknowledge that we're good people. (laughs) Like we know we have a lot of problems (laughs) and like we feel very ashamed, but like, I think because there were, especially in the, the late two thousands, there were so many TV shows that had those like really type a, like, OCD over cleaner people. And it was like, they always just came off as so obnoxious and like hard to be around and controlling. And the thing is, is like a lot of people that I I know at least that have, especially contamination OCD, definitely have like feel very controlling and feel very obnoxious. And like, that's how we feel about ourselves. So Mm. to see that like affirmed in media and then people agreeing in the audience being like, yeah, she's so annoying. It's like, Ah, like that's my biggest fear like please don't confirm that so I think viewing it differently is so interesting because yeah I mean I at like six years old which I had no awareness of what an intrusive thought was every time I would go over a certain step in my house I would view myself hitting my face on it every single time I would see a whole visual thing play out in my head and is that like super sad and hard for like a six-year-old to have that every single time I walk over a step in my house? Yes. Is that also kind of crazy that I had a full thing like painted out in my head? Like, yeah, that's pretty impressive for like a six-year-old to be able to do that. But it's, it's impressive in a hard way. Um, And I think that being able to reorient that, um, like I definitely want to take that into my own life and even share that with people that I know of like, Hey, if you see me going through a really intense thought process where my intrusive thoughts are really loud. Can you try to be the outside voice and reorient that a little bit and be like, wow, like you're being very imaginative right now. Can we try to imagine something else? Like what would happen if like everything is totally fine? And like, what could you do with, with your dog Mm -hmm. this afternoon when you see her to, you know, like 
go down the different imaginative imaginative path. Um, Because yeah, when you're alone in your head, it it, it can be so difficult to not just let your imagination really tap into its power and like go really, really far. Um, But that's, that's a really great way to reorient that. Um, And kind of moving back towards pets, I think after this question, maybe we can move on to, we want to talk about religious OCD because I have a lot of ex religious kiddos um, that listen, uh, myself included. Uh, But how can you work towards not letting your OCD impact your pet's life? Um, I know a lot of people that have uh, struggles with this. I'd struggle with the overbathing because of Mm -hmm. contamination. And um, because I love her so much, it is one of the very few things where if I feel that I am contaminated, there is nothing right now at this time in my healing journey, there's nothing that can really stop me from fixing it and from cleaning and like uncontaminating myself. But if she's contaminated and I know that, oh, I gave her a bath yesterday, like I can't give her another one, like it's not good for her skin, I can sometimes talk myself out of it because I'm like putting my love for her above kind of the compulsion. And it's like, it's strong enough that it can kind of surpass it sometimes, not always, but sometimes it can. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people that have struggles with maybe overbathing, maybe overfeeding, maybe um, if you're kind of having contamination OCD and it's almost turned into agoraphobia and you can't leave the house, then maybe your pet's not really getting enough social activity and kind of all those things that can go down the road. So what are some different uh, tools, I guess, that you can use to maybe step-by-step get a little bit of progress on that. I think that that's one thing with OCD that a lot of people assume, like most, honestly, most disorders that you can just, and then you're good. And I think everything is like such a baby step, but what are some baby steps that you could take towards uh, progress with that? I love the way that you set that up because your example with your dog and overbathing and how you've gotten a little bit of a wedge between your desire at times to bathe her and then your knowledge of weight, but you know, I really care about her. I just bathed her. I don't want to hurt her. So I'm, I'm willing to maybe endure some of this distress in the service of making sure that she's okay. I would say that that resonates very much with a concept in acceptance and commitment therapy called the choice point, which is Basically, when you have a decision to make, trying to look at where do your values lead you. And sometimes when I say values, people get a sense of like that that might mean like it it feels like it represents a certain subset of like when I think of when I first heard values, I was like, oh, like family values. I was like, oh, no, I'm not sure that resonates with me. And it's fine if it resonates with some people. But what I mean by values is just like whatever is important to you. Right. So having compassion for your animal. Um, wanting adventure in your life, wanting, um, you know, creativity, whatever it is that you value at times, I think the most effective ways to push back on OCD are at those moments when you realize what OCD wants me to do and what my values want me to do are different. And if you can, like, like you said, in baby steps, move toward doing things that are going to be in accordance with those values. Um, And knowing that it's not all or nothing. So like with contamination, sometimes OCD will say, you need to 
bathe your dog three times with this specific shampoo, then maybe it's like just rinsing your dog. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a, so you can have steps along the way, but I think taking a step back and saying, Hey, what do I want? Cause I know what my OCD wants. It is yelling in my ear. It is loud. It's giving me images. It's doing all the things, but what do I want? Um, I would say that's kind of one strategy. Yeah, I love that. And I think a lot of the compromising too, like finding little ways that you can compromise and take baby steps can be really helpful. I've had moments where I want to bathe my entire dog and I'm like, okay, can I, am I okay with like washing her feet? Like, cause her feet were what touched the floor. Like, am I okay with that? Or, okay, well, she's going to get in my bed and that gives me a little bit of anxiety, but is it possible that maybe I could just change my sheets the next day instead of having to give her a bath? Like find some sort of middle ground there where even if I'm still coping with it in maybe a way that still kind of feeds my contamination OCD a little bit, it's better than uh, possibly compromising her health or her skin or something, right? Because right? it's like, okay, well, maybe maybe that's not the best solution, but at least it's a baby step forward. Um, and that can be hard too. Cause sometimes I've, I've had like full, uh, and I, I, I think one of the things I've learned about OC in the past, maybe like two years of just paying more attention to it and, and noticing how my brain functions is the, the tension of it. Because I think a lot of people assume that it's something that you just like, oh, I need to do this. And then you do it. Mm-hmm. And part of it is anytime you're trying to fight that compulsion, you're actively living in this like really intense tension and it's so palpable and it's so like obvious to your state of mind. And if you're someone and no one likes to live like that, first of all, but especially if you're someone, which I think most people are that wants a little bit of, uh, doesn't want loose ends and wants to have it kind of, okay, I want to have this completed having that, that tension and knowing that something is kind of not quite, the way that you needed it to be. It's not quite finished. It's not quite completed. It can cause just so much internal stress. Yes. And it's, it gets to the point where I've, I've had moments where I tell my partner, um, you know what, like, and I'm, I'm going through my head and I'm literally pacing my house being like, okay, well, if I give her a bath then like, yeah, I just gave her a bath and okay, well maybe I could do this. And I'm like trying to like think some sort of solution and I can't find anything that feels good except for giving her a bath. And I have had moments where I tell my partner, you know what? I've had a really bad week this week and I have had so much outside stress from other things. I can't afford to live in this state of stress right now and like to push myself and like to try to make a step forward right now. So I'm going to choose not to like maybe next week when things are a little bit more calm and I have a little bit more energy to try to put towards taking steps forward. This is not that moment. This moment is I'm now working myself up even further. We're like on the brink of a panic attack. Like, I don't think that this is helpful at this moment in time. And I've had, and we, and we both are just like, okay, like we're going to just, I'm going to, we're going to bathe the dog and we will, we will find another place to take a step forward, like another day. And so, and that can be really hard. That can feel very like there's grief there and there's shame there. And that can be a very sad, it feels like a loss, but you know, sometimes you kind of got to do what you got to do. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that beating yourself up about that afterward, because I think sometimes people say, well, I did a compulsion and then I beat myself up about doing the compulsion for the next two hours. And so they're suffering just as much as if they were in that state of tension prior to doing a compulsion. 
So I think that self-compassion and just being, you know, being real about there's a particular type of therapy called exposure and response prevention therapy, which is like primarily, I would say as a therapist, what I'm using, but I integrate in some other things as well. I've mentioned acceptance and commitment therapy a few times, but with exposure therapy, you're moving toward the things that are really uncomfortable. And I tell all of my clients, well, not everything has to be an exposure. Just because it's really hard and it's going to fight OCD doesn't mean you have to do it all. And in fact, I've never met anyone who has been able to do that. And that's perfectionism. Yeah. So just, yeah. you know, <laughs> find yourself. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had, um, which we'll talk about this. We can actually, we can just go to it now. Um, there have, uh, OCD is often a catchphrase and people often assume that you can just like get over it or move on or, you know, just like, okay, well, why, why are you not? I've, I've literally had a partner say the words, well, why aren't you trying to get better from it? Like you're just doing it. And it was referring to like, I was just doing my compulsions. And the, the misconception there is like, there is some sort of switch that you can turn off that just there you're, you're healed. Like it's fine. Um, and the reality of it is like any type of OCD, like healing and working through things and making progress, you're still going to have compulsions that you have to complete and you, you, you still do, and you still, you know, have to work through that because there is no zero to a hundred where you wake up one day and all of a sudden all your compulsions are gone. You might have little progress steps where you're getting better at certain ones, or maybe, one compulsion is not quite as intense as it used to be. But I remember when I talked to my therapist for the first time about like, okay, I really need to focus on OCD. Like in the ranking of my my anxiety, my depression, my OCD, the OCD is what is taking up the most mental space. It's what is causing the most distress in relationships. It's It's the number one thing for me. And I was expecting full-blown... Ex, quote unquote exposure therapy of like go lick a telephone pole right. <laughs> like get over your fear of germs and um i i her response was okay well could we pick like a very small thing that you could maybe try not to do this week like just something really small like what do you think is the the lowest ranking of importance on your list of things that need to be like not contaminated and I think that my my answer was like, well, when I go to like get a, a, a coffee at Starbucks or whatever, or a, a drive-through, I often have Lysol in my car and I will spray it down. And I was like, I might be comfortable with like bringing the coffee into my house and not wiping it down. And I was able to do that that week. And it was like a really, like on the ranking of importance, it was pretty low on the scale, but that was like my little victory. And I assumed it was going to be like, literally like don't bathe for two weeks like <laughs> just go for it and I was like ah, oh my god and so finding little steps to work even like ranking what is important because I do have certain compulsions that really take a top spot for me and I have certain compulsions that sometimes I forget to do them like I I will think they're important and then I'll get busy and then I'm like oh I didn't do that like okay cool like that's great like we and then I'm aware of it and then <laughs> and then it starts then it starts getting more uh, tense but yeah. So with all of that being said, can you explain why OCD, first of all, is very real and valid and should mm -hmm. be treated as valid? Um, but also, why is it something that you can't just snap your fingers and like mm -hmm. 
you're over it. Like what is the process and why is it something that the the treatment and the healing and the growth really can take significant amounts of time because it's so many baby steps? Like why is that? Oh, that's such a good question. And I'd like to address that question from multiple different perspectives. And the first of which will be neurological. And because I think for for whatever reason, you know, for better or for worse, some sort of neutral on it, when we know that there are brain differences between people, like somehow that, and I don't, I don't think it should, but somehow that lends validity to something, right? Like it's just the culture we live in. It's like, oh, well, look, these brain scans look different. So you're not just making it up. Like it's not in your head. So I'm not saying that it's like that, that, that premise I disagree with. However, I will say that there is compelling evidence that if you look at, for example, there was a study looking at, um, I think it was like 50 people with OCD, 50 people, five, zero, 50 people without. And, um, looking at during different tasks, which areas of the brain tended to be most activated, had the most activity. And just based on on those data, uh, scientists were able to then accurately categorize like who was in each category. So they were blind to the diagnosis. They were just looking at these brain scans over time and they were saying, wow, okay, so everybody who had more activity in this area of the brain is more likely to have OCD. And um, that wasn't a very eloquent way of describing it, but just to say that with the most rigorous scientific standards, we know that there are brain differences. Now, here's another thing that's important to know. There's a lot of plasticity there. So you can also look at people before and after successful courses of treatment and their brains may look more in terms of like activation wise, their brains may look, you know, indistinguishable from people without OCD. So that's kind of like, I think for whatever reason, like I said, when you say there are brain differences, then people are like, oh, so it's not just willpower. It's not just like a choice. It's not just so, in your head. Yeah. It's like, no, it's actually legit. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's one perspective. Another reason why I think it's so difficult to just, you know, stop any of this is it's kind of what we talked about before. People with OCD, when they're in the midst of an obsession, it is immersive. It is all senses, you know, not, not literally, and I'm not saying like that people are having um, auditory hallucinations or anything like that, but, but really it is an incredibly immersive experience. And so they're having all of the physiological reactions as if like the thing is happening or the thing is imminent. And then you have the behavioral reinforcement part of it, which is like you said, there's something called negative reinforcement, which is in behaviorism in psychology. That just means that whenever you have something negative going on and then it's taken away whatever you did to take that negative thing away, you're going to be more likely to do it, right? Like we eat when we're hungry because hunger is aversive. And so when you do a compulsion, it's taking away that feeling of, you know, something bad is going to happen or things don't quite feel right, or I'm going to get sick or whatever the fear is. Um, and so when you do that over and over and over again throughout the years, it's kind of like rolling a ball down a muddy hill and those grooves in the mud get very deep. And so it's telling somebody, just stop doing this behavior. When they've been scratching those metaphorical mosquito bites their whole life is really hard. So those would be some things that I would say. And I would say them very loudly and with no shame to anyone who says anything <laughs> about OCD as a choice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was something that um, I had to explain to some people in my life was the idea that 
with my contamination OCD, it it got, uh, and I, this was the first time I ever had this happen in my life where I had a pretty steady course of how my compulsions were. I didn't know I had OCD. And then COVID happened and it was like such a substantial jump where I just developed all of these compulsions that came out of nowhere. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, because part of it is the government and the state and everyone was recommending all these things and saying, well, you might want to wash your groceries down and you might want to wipe down your packages and you might want to, you know, da, 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 da. And my brain knowing that I already had contamination OCD was like, okay, I will do this forever. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) And I've told my partner, I have yet to get COVID. And I am absolutely convinced that that is one of the reasons why I'm having the hardest time combating any of these compulsions. Mm -hmm. Because Uh I am like, even though rationally I can sit here and say, that's probably not the reason why I haven't gotten COVID. Still, in my head, I'm like, well, if I stop wiping down my groceries, I'm going to get it. <laughs> like that's going to be what does it. Mm-hmm. And so every time I wipe down groceries, every time I wipe down packages, every time I wipe off my dog's feet, when we walk in the door, it's like, this is why I'm safe. And it's confirming and affirming because I've, I've yet to have the bad thing happen. And same thing with my dog. If I, if I turn around and come back when I have that really intrusive thought of the building on fire, it's like, mm-hmm. Well, I did it. I saved her. Like the building could have been on fire if I hadn't come home, but now it's fine. And it was all me. And it was, I did this and I saved her. And now my brain is convinced that if it happens again, when I don't come home, that that's going to be the one time that the whole building goes up in flames. And which is the, no, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Which is another kind of like, way in which OCD takes advantage of it, of imagination, right? Oh, yeah. Because it is making this correlation, it's making the correlation into a causation. It's saying, okay, you know, like I, um, I do something when I'm working with younger kids where I say, um, okay, if I had you, every time you leave my office, I have you do like a little dance or something at the doorway, and then you keep coming back and and you don't get really sick in between. Is that going to be what causes it? And they're like, no, like that's weird. And I'm like, well, but why is it any different for your OCD? Um, yep. Not that again, insight alone doesn't make it go away, right? Because mm-hmm. you said, hey, I know these things are not um, the things that are really keeping me safe, but they feel that way and they're reinforced that way. Um, and I think curiosity is also just like a really good strategy to combat OCD, because I think OCD doesn't want you to be curious about, hey, can I bend these rules? Because it's like, well, if you bend them and something terrible happens, and you know what? You can't know 100%. And OCD wants you to know 100%. But you can know, like, reasonably, this is probably safe. And so can I be curious about it? And OCD is like, we don't do curiosity. So that's like another way to reframe sometimes when you're changing the things that have very understandably become like second nature. Yeah, no, I think um, there's so many, uh, something that like totally changed my perspective of OCD and intrusive thoughts was there was something circulating online maybe a year ago, two years ago about a therapist and someone who had a really hard time with the idea of their flat iron being left on. It was a constant fear of, oh, my flat iron is on, my flat iron's on. They'd leave the house. And even if they remembered unplugging it, it was like, maybe I, maybe I'm making that up. Maybe that was yesterday. Like maybe it's, maybe it's plugged in. And their therapist suggested, why don't you just take your flat iron to work? Look in your backpack, flat iron's right there, couldn't be plugged in. 
And it's a small adaptation to your routine, but like, and maybe not a great permanent solution, but does it work for the time being to think out of the box and kind of create this like creative solution to the problem? Yeah. And one of those things for me was like, I got cameras for my house for for my dog because it was like, it's a lot better for me to peep on her every once in a while and check my phone than for me to feel this like horribly intense urge to run home and check on her. And if I have eyes on her and, and they, I can speak through them. So I've had times where I have a really bad intrusive thought that like she's dead for whatever reason and I can't see her. I can hop on the mic and be like, Stevie, like, are you there? And she'll like come crawling out, like looking around, like who's talking? And I'm like, okay, cool. She's good. And that's not my ideal permanent solution. Yeah, My ideal permanent solution is to not have that compulsion. But mm-hmm. is it significantly better than me spending the entire day at work having anxiety? Mm-hmm. And and granted, does it also kind of fuel that compulsion a little bit? A little bit. But it it's better than me having a compulsion to drive all the way home and have that interrupt my work day and make it an environment where I can't really have a job. And now we're like way far down the line because this thing is ruling my life in a way that is a lot more, I guess, kind of like unlivable. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. kind of taking baby steps to make them not necessarily entirely, my compulsions entirely go away, but make them a little bit more livable and a little bit more realistic to have like a life that I enjoy and that I feel fulfilled by and that I do still have some of these things And I've also kind of come to a little bit of the conclusion, which this might be my pessimism a tiny bit, that I'm probably going to have a lot of these things in my head for a very long time, if not forever, of having this tension and this fear. And um, me and my partner have talked about, like, if we were to, uh, like, live in the same house together, how would that work? And how would my compulsions not, like, rule his life? And mm-hmm. we've talked about some of the things where he said, oh, I'm comfortable with us wa- washing down the groceries. That's probably not a bad idea just in mm-hmm. general, to be honest. Like groceries can be gross. Like that's not the worst thing in the world. And we've kind of talked through the which compulsions are livable and mm-hmm. are don't take that much time, don't take that much energy, are not horrible, are not um, – they don't constantly like change the course of my day. What are a little bit more livable? And then what are some that are – like drastically change the course of my day and turn something that was supposed to be a 15 minute thing into a two hour thing and make me cancel plans and make me like do all these things. Like those are the ones that we've prioritized, like me and my therapist trying to like, okay, those are the ones I need to focus on tackling right now. Like I can wipe down my groceries for a little bit. Like that's not the end of the world on the opposite. If someone walks into my house with outside shoes on and they walk halfway into my home I have to clean my whole house. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. now a 15 yeah. minute interaction that turned into a two hour activity. That's not really livable. And so those are the ones that it's like, okay, well this should be prioritized. And that had, that really helped me of kind of thinking out of the box, creative solutions to maybe take the ones that are lower, I don't know, intensity and yeah. make them a little bit more livable and then try to focus on the ones that are really intense and say, okay, these are the ones that are drastically impacting my life how do I take baby steps to get these to get a little bit better? Because those are the ones that are super duper hard. Right. And I think kind of reinserting your values, what is it taking, if I'm spending two hours cleaning the whole house, that's going to take away from, you know, from other things that I want to be doing as opposed to 
something, you know, I sometimes I'll use the word cursory. People do like, oh, I'm just going to do a cursory wipe down. And they'll say, I feel so bad. I'm still doing the wipe down. Like I'm, I'm not completely compulsion free. And I'm like, look at how much time you have back from your OCD. And you know what? The cursory wipe, maybe you'll, you know, limit that to a little bit shorter and a little bit shorter. And maybe you'll like, when you have the cameras at home, maybe you find yourself looking less and less often, or you find yourself saying, you know what? I'm willing to say this is OCD and I'm willing to, you know, I'm, I'm willing to wait 10 minutes before I look or whatever it is. It's all about those baby steps. And I do think that you know, for, for some people, if they're doing exposure and response prevention and they're doing it in a really clunky sort of like ham fisted way, then it can be like, yeah, go out and lick a toilet. And it's like, look, that wasn't really like a part of my value system. That wasn't part of my routine to begin with. <laughs> right. Right. And yet I've had some clients who really do want to go all in and they're like, I'm, I'm ready to do, you know, pretty intense exposures. But for me, I think that's about like it's consent and agency, right? If somebody's coming into my office and they're like, this is ruling my life, I can be there to say, hey, I have training in this area. I have, you know, I have expertise, but you you are the one in charge of this. And so right. I'm going to, I think that's really important, especially since therapy can be so, I mean, therapy can be hard generally, but, um, you know, I think with this kind of thing, consent is so important. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than you sharing something about your compulsions or about a struggle and having someone pressure you or make you feel like you're forced to take it from a baby step to like a giant leap that maybe you're not ready for. Um, and then to be shamed for not being ready for it. Like there's, that is such a, I've had that experience and it is not a fun experience to have. Mm -hmm. And if anything, I think it really does set back like your healing process because I think that in order to approach some of these things that are really already really filled with shame, it has mm -hmm. to be a really safe, shame-free environment. And the yes. second that shame gets brought into that and it feels like I'm being pressured, or I'm being forced, or you're going to think less of me if I can't do this at a certain speed and like can't heal really, really quickly and like get it all done quick and in a nice little bow, that makes me want to crawl back into my cave. And honestly, it makes me want to make sure that everything in my house is really clean because then it's like, okay, everything needs to be perfect because I feel really unperfect. So if anything, it's doing the exact opposite of the intended goal. I'm just right. going back and feeling very ashamed and like perfectionistic and feeling like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm terrible. Like my house must be clean and perfect. And like, I just, I, it sends me completely in the wrong direction, um, which obviously is not what we're aiming for. <laughs> Wow. I think those interpersonal aspects are so important. And I wonder, I'm speaking, I'm going to be sort of vulnerable and speaking from my own history as a clinician. I think it was initially, I think I did tend to be a little bit more pushy, I would say, than, than is helpful. I think I will own that. And I think that was in the service of my own shame reduction about, or not shame reduction, but just sort of like I, I wasn't confident as a therapist. And so I was doing the whole like, well, if you're not moving fast enough, then I'm not a good therapist. So I've got to push it. And it's like, like you said, it's not helpful to anyone. So, yeah. Right. And with that being said, actually, one of the things I had listed to talk about was kind of the communication aspect. If uh, specifically I had it in contamination OCD, but I think it kind of applies to anything. Um, how can someone communicate their OCD like needs slash compulsions to someone else? And like, what about functioning with OCD in a relationship? Like I mentioned, like, if those compulsions are 
because they can kind of span out sometimes where anyone that's in your space kind of gets enveloped by that compulsion and is often expected to fulfill that compulsion with you because it's like, well, if I'm cleaning things, but you're entering my space and your things are not clean, that's still entering my space and that's still a threat to me. And like that, that item, that coffee that you bought that you didn't wipe down, like that's now in my head, even though it's not my item and it's not in just my little bubble. So how do you communicate that, I guess, as the person with OCD? And then in in comparison, what is a helpful way to receive that information and support someone with OCD if you're a friend, a partner, a parent, you know, sister, brother, whatever? Yeah. I'm really glad that you asked this because this is a particular passion of mine is talking about the relational aspects of of OCD and how it really can, despite being an individual disorder, it affects all all of our relationships Um, because I think it does, um, you know, as much as somebody with OCD may try to or may appear to be trying to keep everything very well controlled to you know, assuage their, their compulsions or to, to feel more, more comfortable or basically to just get through the day, right? Because that's how loud it is. Um, there is this expectation oftentimes that OCD has of um, others. Well, not an expectation that others do the same, but just a recognition that like other people are, I don't mean messy in the sense of like physically messy, although yes, that too, if that is you know, part of the symptom picture, but people are just, other people are not going to be following OCD's rules, right? Like I have, um, I'll say sometimes like OCD has this very long kind of list of like where things go and how they should be. And again, I'm, everybody's, everybody's different. Um, but generally there are all these rules that other people don't know. They're not privy to that. So I think that there's both a, of course there's vulnerability in telling others about that, um, so I always tell people when they're thinking about disclosing to consider a couple things. So consider, do you have evidence that this is somebody who is, um, trustworthy? Because again, you can't, I always say disclosure is exposure because you don't know, right? OCD hates it when we don't know the outcome of something. So, you know, you could be worried about, will they reject me or will they fail to understand? And, we can't get to 100% certainty on whether or not that will happen. However, being judicious about like who you disclose to, you don't owe anybody disclosure or your whole story. And Fina, I think it's awesome that you're so open in talking about your OCD because I think that is, um, cause I think that's going to be helpful to so many other people, but thinking about like, can I trust this person? How have they responded to other kinds of mental health things? And then when it comes to, let's say they know about the OCD and it's like negotiating, how can we live together? How can we be in relationship with one another? Then I do think that there is a sense of, um, you know, there's going to probably be a sense of compromise on both sides. And that is just any relationship. It's just that OCD kind of throws it into relief. And because OCD's needs tend to be different, then, you know, those for, for people without OCD, there might be that extra level of like, well, but I just don't get it and kind of dancing around that. But I think just honest communication, I think people on the receiving end, I mean, honestly, start by saying thank you. Like, thank you for telling me that. I know that was probably really hard. And, um, and I'm not here to judge you and I love you and I'm here to support you. You know, I guess if it's like a work relationship, that would be awkward, but it's, you know, whatever the relationship yeah, is. If it's, if it's something that is an I love you thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just say I love you. I'm fine. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, really. Uh, and then knowing this might be a process of, okay, here are OCD's rules. Here's what I need to be. Here's what I really want. I, as the individual, here's what my OCD wants. So again, sometimes having that little bit of distance. Um, and then here's what you want. And how can we come up with, with a plan to kind of move it to a place where everybody feels comfortable? Because I do know some people who have, um, with OCD, who have partners who are like, you know, I'm okay to do the, like taking my clothes off in the garage and putting them straight into the washer. And then we'll move up to my outside clothes can come inside, but maybe they can only come in these rooms. And so they almost become like part of the baby steps. And, um, and I think if you have people in your life who are willing to do that, um, and then have those conversations and bring them into therapy. If you're seeing an individual therapist, I love when couples come in, they're hard sessions, but they're so powerful. Yeah, that's literally exactly what me and my partner are going through right now is talking about the future and uh, mm-hmm. kind of bargaining what's realistic. And we've kind of talked about like, well, if like far in the future, if we have a house, could the bedroom be the cleanest space for me? Mm-hmm. And the living room can be a place where outside clothes are allowed on the couch. Mm-hmm. And that just becomes a safe spot. And maybe Stevie, my dog, maybe her paws get wiped off before she goes in the bedroom and not before... Mm-hmm. She comes in the house. Like maybe the house is a safe space, but the bedroom is where, and we've even talked about if we were to ever get a home together and we're talking like very far in the future, but we've had to kind of like bargain it out a little bit because it's like, well, if we're moving towards in a relationship and we're looking towards a future, my OCD complicates that a little bit where it's not just like, a, well, we buy a house in like three years and that's fine. Like there does have to be an extent of, which is a really hard conversation of having the conversation of kind of like, this might not be totally fixed by the time that we move in together. Like, are you okay with that? If that's mm-hmm. a possibility, is that something that you're comfortable with? And coming with things like, you know, his his boundary was like, I can do the groceries. I don't want to have to like, you know, change clothes the second I walk into a house, like right. if it's my house. And so the other thing that we, um, and this I communicate this to anyone, I always say, do not give me control over your space. Don't do it. If you let me into your home, don't ask me what needs to be cleaned. Don't give me that freedom because that has now become, I always phrase it as my house is my home base. So with my contamination OCD, I can go on a public bus. I just can't bring any of those germs into my home. Mm -hmm. So like I have to make sure everything is pristine in order to enter my home. If I enter your home, do not let me do that. (laughs) Do not ask me like, Hey, like what needs to be clean? Like, absolutely not. Just let it be. It will become a, a non-home base space for me. And that's fine. If your home is synonymous with the public bus to me, I'll just think of it as like, anytime I come home, I need to disinfect. But if I'm in your home, it's still kind of like a non like home base space. And so that's okay. And, uh, my partner, the first time I came to his apartment, he was like, what do you need cleaned? And I was like, no, <laughs> do not That's ask me you. that. Do not give me that power because I will take yeah. it and I will run with it. Like, and not mm-hmm. intentionally, but my brain will take it and run with it. So do yeah. not give me that. Like, don't ever give me that power. Like, I can't have it. If we end up in the same space and we're living in the same home, that's different. But right now you have your home base. I have mine. Do not give me two home bases because that not only is not going to help uh, you, it's also going to put more stress on me because now I'm doing double the work. Like now I'm, now I'm keeping two spaces clean 
and I don't want to increase the amount of home bases that I have. I would like to keep it to just mine because mm-hmm. we're trying to even decrease the amount of, I guess, cleanliness yeah. we need at my home base. I don't need to increase to two home bases. Um, so that was a conversation that we had right off the bat. Like the first, the first time I went to his house, I was like, please <laughs> don't clean anything. <laughs> like, Don't make it clean. Um, I can't deal with that. Um, but yeah. And then I guess as we're ending here, I wanted to touch on religious OCD just a tiny bit as we head out. Um, I know that a lot of people uh, exit religion uh, with long lasting religious OCD, even if they're not actually actively still involved in the religion anymore. Um, For me, it was a lot of feeling the need to say prayers in a certain order as a kid. Um, If I didn't list everybody in the same order, I thought that they were going to die. (laughs) And I did not realize that that was common until TikTok. I put a TikTok up about it and had a ton of people be like, I did that too. And I was like, oh, interesting. Um, Or feeling the need to still pray, even if you don't consider yourself a part of that religion anymore. Um, or some other religious act in order to like avoid being struck down or punished or harmed or something where there's a lot of fear there. Um, and a lot of my episodes have centered around deconstruction and leaving religion because that was my personal experience. And I come from an environment where a lot of people have done the same thing. Um, so with that being said, just to kind of end on a religious OCD note, what are some coping strategies or some tools that might help with that subset of uh, OCD specifically? Yeah. I love the way you asked that because I think for, you can certainly have, you can certainly be religious and have religious OCD, which is just perfectionism about that faith system. And like you said, you can be somebody who no longer you know, affiliates with or subscribes to, or you can be outside external to a religious system and still have almost like the vestiges of those, um, of those compulsions. I've even seen people who are like grow up in households that are, um, where faith is just not a part of the picture at all. And they can have religious OCD because they just kind of like hear about it. And I do think that a lot of religion, some some faith practices are just you know can be almost conducive to compulsions because they are really high stakes right prayer is really high stakes and um and then if you put perfectionism onto that um yeah then it makes sense that that it would be it's it's kind of like a perfect storm for OCD So some strategies there would be, again, I would say, come back to whatever your values are. So if you are somebody who, and it's hard to say, you know, like, let's say you're somebody who sort of believes in a higher power, but doesn't believe in the sort of religious tenets that are supporting some of this, you know, the way that you're praying or things like that. Come back to that and think, okay, if I were telling somebody about my beliefs without the influence of OCD, would I tell them, okay, to, you know, talk to a higher power, you have to do it in this order. You have to say it this way. And if it doesn't apply to other people, why should it apply to you? I mean, let alone if you're somebody who's like, I don't actually believe in a higher power, but I find myself, you know, compelled to do this. Coming back to, wow, like, is this something that you truly believe somebody needs to do? Um, yeah. And I know that doesn't make it go away. But- no, that's a great point, though. Like, if it's not something that you would say to someone that you're introducing to your set of values, then why do you have to do it in order to save yourself? Right. But it is a right. good point, too, with the high stakes aspect of it, because I think 
and a lot of other uh, subsets of OCD, you're creating that really drastic outcome where with the fire, with the fire in the apartment, that's something that I have just like, you know, written up in my mind. Whereas with religion, I grew up being told that like, if something, if X, Y, Z happens, you burn in hell. It wasn't something that I created. It was something that was introduced to me at a drastically young age. And so I I personally think that with my experiences with religion and with my experience with OCD, I think that that may have started my OCD was kind of this, this idea that I did these things to avoid X, X, Y, Z outcome that was very terrible and scary. And I think that that then slowly started to spread to other facets of my life um, with the same mindset, the same reinforcement of if I don't do, if I, if I do this, I avoid this. Um, and yeah, I, I had the, I, I luck of, somehow I made a pretty clean break from religion. I didn't carry a lot of my compulsions with me, but I did catch myself. Uh, if I really wanted a certain job or, uh, really was, I was on a plane. I found myself like feeling this really intense compulsion to pray and make sure that I kind of covered my ass a little bit. And it was like, if I didn't, mm-hmm. I was like, well, something's going to happen. I'm going to get struck down. Um, even though I had, I didn't believe, like it wasn't something, it wasn't a part of my values anymore at all. But I felt this pressure and this anxiety of like, well, if I don't do it, like that's going to be the reason the plane goes down is because I forgot to pray. Um, which once again, if I ever were to introduce someone to a religion that I was a part of, that would never be something that I like listed as like, well, <laughs> whenever you go on a plane, you have to say this prayer or everyone dies. <laughs> like that's not quite part of it. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This was like beneficial for me, uh, significantly beneficial for me. And I think you are, um, you explain things in a way that makes a lot of sense to at least my brain. Um, and in addition, I think you approach it with such like gentleness and, uh, kindness and understanding when a lot of people speak about OCD with such shame. I think it's really refreshing to talk to someone and have a more vulnerable conversation and have it just like surrounded by gentleness and empathy because that's not often how like we get received. Um, so thank you for that and for doing that work. Cause I, it means a lot to me and I'm sure it will mean a lot to people listening because that's not affirmation that we get very often. Oh, well, you're welcome. And thank you for saying that. That's a that's a lovely perspective to hear um, because it can feel, yeah, it can feel a little bit like, um, especially since I do, you know, I do want for people, I want for people to push themselves in, in, in the service of having the lives that I know that they can have, but I don't want yeah. them to just to do it out of shame or to do it out of like, and my brain has to be an adversary, but you know, my brain, which is creative and wonderful, um, is also, you know, not helpful in these ways. And so, um, and so I'm going to address that. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug any place people can find you or learn more from you? Cause I'm sure you have a lot more to, to teach and to show people at least like we, this is only an hour. So I'm sure there's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I do. So I am as, as the director of the Nashville OCD and anxiety treatment center, we do have an Instagram. It's at OCD Nashville, where you can kind of find, you know, things about our clinic, some kind of mental health 
educational materials. I also draw the comics for that account. So I make little mental health comics and um, graphics to try to really take like complicated mental health concepts and, and distill them down into something that's easy to digest. Um, I'm also, uh, um, well, I'm working on a book, which will be published in December of this year by New Harbinger Publications. <laughs> and Ah, congrats. Thank you. Yes, the book, I had to write down the title because it's long. And so this is just flows from our conversation. The book is called Thriving in Relationships When You Have OCD, How to Keep Obsessions and Compulsions from Sabotaging Love, Friendship, and Family Connections. Oh, I love that. There are, I feel like there are not enough books on OCD too, or they're like yeah. significantly old, like they're really outdated. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. And so between that and the Instagram, you can, you know, kind of find me there. And our clinic, if you're local to Tennessee, we work with people all across the state. So you can find us at OCDNashville.com. So another resource that I want to share with everybody is that the International OCD Foundation has a series of conferences every year. And the two main ones are there's an in-person conference. It's going to be in Denver this year in July of 2022. And then there's an online conference, which is in November. I think first weekend in November. And they're all different kinds of offerings. And it's not just for therapists and researchers. It's also for individuals with OCD. So there are workshops and things like that. And for the online conference, I am going to be leading a support group for people who have OCD related to their pets. So that's something that is, yeah, that is available online. It's fairly affordable. The in-person conference um, can be a little bit pricey. And of course, like travel and all that stuff, if you're not in Denver, I'll be at that one as well, doing a couple presentations. But the online one has something that we just talked about. So that's another resource. Yeah, that's so cool. Do you know if there's like the pricing of that or has that come out at all of the, the cost of things? I don't know. I think it has for the in-person conference. I don't have the pricing off off the top of my head, but if you all go to um, iocdf.org, that'll have all the information under the little conferences tab. Amazing. Okay. I will link all of that. Um, I'm so excited about the book. I will definitely, I will be buying that for sure. That's so exciting. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think this will be really helpful for a lot of people. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. That's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews mean a lot. And um, you can also now review on Spotify. That's a new option they just added. So if you can leave us a review, that would be great. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, Take a deep breath and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys in two weeks.